Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode from Rare Petro of the Industry Leader Spotlight. Now, I believe this should be our seventh episode. I'll correct that if I'm wrong. Maybe eighth. Who knows? We've got lots of great people coming in and lots of great content. So make sure you go to rarepetro.com. Look for Rare Petro Industry Leader Spotlight on YouTube. Plenty of resources. But today, I am joined by a new expert, Mr. Moji Karimi. Welcome to the show, Moji. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, of it. Of course. So Moji is the co-founder and CEO at Simvita Factory. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Drilling Engineering and a Master's of Petroleum Engineering. And his experiences range from drilling advanced deep water drilling methods to novel biotechnologies with applications in the energy and space industry. And that is actually what I'd like to talk about today. Can you tell us a little bit about Simvita Factory? Sure. Uh, yes, yeah, Samita Factory is a company. It's uh, you know it's CO two utilization platform. Um, basically, we have through a, a, a different portfolio of technologies, which we'll talk about today, uh, using CO two as a feedstock instead of a waste or liability, and then converting that into chemicals um, that have you know use cases across different industries. Uh, the initial reaction that kind of made this whole thing happen was uh, photosynthesis. Uh, just like in nature, you go from CO2 and uh, sunlight and water uh, to, you know, uh, sugar and uh, oxygen. So we figured out a way to mimic that system, like to build an artificial system that does the same thing that plants do. And that led us to the space application and then eventually to uh, heavy industry type applications, uh, which uh, I'll go into in more details here soon. Perfect. Yeah. And of course, I will include whatever resources we need to reach some Vita Factory. Put a link here. I'll put some stuff down in the description of this video. And if you're listening to the podcast, you will have to go to rarepetro.com to find those resources. But of course, this is Industry Leaders Spotlight. We're here to talk about Moji. So, can you tell me how you got started in oil and gas? I mean, I imagine growing up in Iran is pretty helpful with that. Yeah, exactly. So it's like natural. Also, uh, Iranian parents are kind of like Asian parents. They're like, you want to be a doctor, <laughs> engineer, lawyer. So um, for me, you know, um, I had a bigger interest in engineering. Hmm. And um, I looked into a few disciplines like mechanical, electrical, chemical. And I was wanted to kind of have the thing that was more ambitious. And like you said, there is a lot of uh, momentum around oil and gas in Iran and Ministry of Oil is like such a high regard in, you know, in, in the eyes yeah, of yeah. like young kids, right? So I was drawn to that. And then, um, you know, like you mentioned, my bachelor's degree is in drilling engineering, which is very specific. Like mm -hmm. here, we don't have that. Like you go to petroleum, yeah. but back home uh, for bachelors, you have to choose. Do you want to go drilling, production or exploration or reservoir, like from the beginning? And I did some research and, um, you know, people that I've talked to, they told me drilling is more fun. It's <laughs> also, uh, you make more money because you go to the field, you know, and it's more dynamic. So I chose drilling. And, uh, you know, after that, uh, I applied to come to US um, and I got a scholarship at the University of uh, Louisiana in Lafayette. And that's where I did my master's and, you know, the rest uh, is history as we will talk about today as well. <laughs> Yeah, and I imagine you probably didn't start some Vita factory as soon as you graduated. So can you tell people kind of what you got into after leaving school? Yeah, so um, I, I think uh, a lot of people would resonate with my story uh, because when you talk about entrepreneurship, you have different back, 
stories, right? And the one that is repeated and we hear a lot about is, is those who say, you know, I was selling newspapers when I was five years old and I was like, you know, doing all kind of like a small gigs uh-huh. as they kind of built into it. So like the traditional hustlers who then got into a startups, uh, for me, it wasn't that way at all. Um, actually, I thought even all the way to coming to US, I thought if I get a job at Chevron or Schrambajay or something, then I'll be happy, you know. Um, and then uh, once I graduated, I got my first job at a company called Tesco, which, you know, was bought out our division by Schrambajay. I went to Weatherford, which was that big company that I wanted, right? Yeah. Uh, to kind of climb up the corporate ladder. But once I was there and, you know, I was learning more about how things actually work and I wanted to explore more. I got talking with some of the C-levels and just kind of taking a step back and see, okay, is this uh, the the same thing that I wanted? And I realized that's not what I wanted. (laughs) I I wanted to go in a, in a more of a fast track reaction, uh, traction as as you would realize today, I'm very impatient with, with everything and, and the timelines uh, specifically. So, um, and that was around the time, you know, um, 2013, 14, where, you know, startups were taking off, uh, the software startups were coming to fruition and we're trying to figure out like, what does this mean for oil and gas? I mean, we, there was this notion that you're going to need a lot of money to start a company for, in oil and gas, but mm. software kind of broke that down, right? Like, no, you don't, you could actually do that. I mean, you guys are doing yeah. some of that too, right? Definitely. And, uh, so I, got to learn more about startups and innovation and heavy industries like oil and gas and um, had my initial uh, test case uh, when Weatherford put us in this program that they wanted us to kind of build companies inside Weatherford. So they picked a bunch of us that were more like, uh, I guess, um, ambitious and they gave us different ideas that were internal R&D projects Mm -hmm. and pretty much said, you know, if you're outside, you have to go do fundraising as a founder, right? To then spend on different resources. We'll just give you the resources. Here's marketing, here's sales, here's operations, here's engineering. Go commercialize this product. And mine was a set point choke for uh, managed pressure drilling in onshore. Uh, but through that process, um, I-, I got more comfortable with... Um, you know, uh, commercialization of new technology, taking something from the lab to the field. Uh, how do you do that? How do you measure it? How do you do it more efficiently? How do you get the stakeholders on board? And I'm like, huh, I, I could probably do this outside. <laughs> <laughs> so then that's what I did, you know, yeah. and um, I'll talk about it. But initially I joined another startup to learn how it works from inside. And once I felt comfortable, so as you could see, this was very kind of systematic, mm-hmm. you know, and it took about, um, you know, yeah, right about like five to seven years um, to then start in my own. Yeah. Are you pretty happy that it went down like that? Because a lot of people will go the conventional route where they go back to school, they get an MBA, and then they learn their skills from there. But it sounds like Weatherford really hooked you up with a lot more than just a paycheck. You know, I think something you said is very important. A lot of people look back and think like, oh, did I make the right decision? Like, you know, mm-hmm. but there is for each of those people, there's like 10 other people who didn't, who just stayed where they're unhappy, you know, or, yeah. or it just not speaking to their core. And that's like, that's soul crushing to me, you know? So I, I always have an appreciation for those who 
go against the grain, like do something different, even if it fails miserably, like mm-hmm. get back on the feet, do something else, you know, they're trying, right? They want to make a change that makes them happy. So um, that said, like, I think everything happens for a reason, you know, this journey of um, ups and downs of it uh, has got me to where I am today. And the, the experiences that I have and everything is because of those. So I, I wouldn't want to change anything about it. I think in some ways actually it's, it's quite empowering because some of these dots that now I'm connecting in um, how we could bring synthetic biology into oil and gas for you know, uh, climate kind of change solutions, it's, it's all related to, to the whole history um, and, and along with my co-founders as well. Uh, but the key is to always keep an open mind to change, even if it's hard. And that's, you know, that's, that's what sets entrepreneurs apart, I guess, in um, building up the, the courage to, to do so. Definitely. And I want to talk about, like you said, becoming an entrepreneur. So we've talked about a lot of your career, the education, the early stuff, you going, I think I could do this on my own. When was that point? When did that switch flip from you being just an energy professional to an industry leader? What was your first endeavor? Yeah, you know, for me, it's never like an aha moment or a switch. It's mm-hmm. continuous. Like just like connecting the dots one by one, like building the puzzle one by one until you see enough of it. It's like, oh, okay, now I know what this is. So even when I was at Tesco, even when I was at Weatherford, I, I never was thinking about it as like, this is a job that I'm doing. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt like I'm here to make better for this company. And like, what are the areas that we could do that like i'll even then i was thinking as like a founder like everything depends on this this has to be successful and really being investing in, in invested in in whatever i was doing emotionally you know like work ethic wise and uh, so but when you do that and throughout your career like and, and this is not like any big company versus the other like all big companies it's just the nature of it is People who think like that, a lot of times you would find that it's just so hard to, to stay at a big company and do this day in and day out and be happy. And that's why a lot of people leave and say, okay, well, what else can I do? Oh, wait, I could have started my own. And then I have more control over how we want to set this up and the type of culture that we want to build and to attract then other people who, who think the same way. And that's why you see a lot of times small companies come out of nowhere and make a whole industry irrelevant in the course of 10 years because they they're not comfortable they just wanted to continue to thrive and i've always had that mindset no matter what the job is you know in, in the different companies and i carry that over now to what we do at semvita mm-hmm. and then was semvita that first uh, startup then or did you have something even before that no i had uh, kind of two other uh, startups before that. The first one uh, after the Weatherford experience was actually um, a, uh, you know, this was at the time where we're th- looking at, you know, the digital was like the big move, right? And uh, production forecasting, building better models than Aries, you know, that uh, doesn't require a lot of kind of deep expertise in the old school tools. And uh, automated uh, production forecasting, asset management. So uh, I started basically along with uh, two of my co-founders at the time, um, this platform for automated production forecasting. Um, That 
actually uh, didn't work out eventually, uh, which is often like a lot of times with those first cases, you know, um, the company did survive though. And then eventually one of the co-founders took it on and like now they're successful fundraising and like everything. But um, somewhere along the way, I actually decided to um, join uh, Biota, which was my, the second startup as their uh, BD manager in Houston and as their first oil and gas employee to, you know, uh, go and commercialize this. This was a company that wanted to commercialize DNA sequencing in oil and gas, looking at DNA of microbes in the oil and in the rock as a new data source to be kind of next to geochemistry, petrophysics. So I did that. And um, actually that was my introduction to biotechnology because that company was based in San Diego. And I realized, oh wow, like there is a whole tool set of, tool set of technology that is now available, is de-risk and is made inexpensive enough that we could bring into other industries. And eventually that led uh, actually to um, co-founding of Sambita, mm -hmm. which is synthetic biology, which is the genetic engineering of microbes uh, in the uh, oil and gas industry. So as you could see, this was like a progression of uh, ideas. It wasn't like, I have this specific idea that I want to do and like, I'm going to do everything to do this specific thing. It's uh, more systematic looking at the market, um, looking at what is available, what is going to work, what is being translated from universities into the field and uh, how to professionalize basically the, the commercialization process of it um, to provide it as a service to other companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like the way you described that. You didn't graduate and go, I'm going to commercialize biotechnology to oil and gas. Like you said, there were stepping stones along the way. And it sounds like it was mostly successful, but then we kind of run into a hiccup that most of us call 2020. How has that been for Semvita? Has it made business better? Has it actually made you guys turn to different projects? What are you doing? So uh, actually, <laughs> we've had bigger hiccups than 2020, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, you know, because we're lucky that, you know, with the customers that we have, we didn't have any projects cancel. And um, we're able to kind of, we had our lab shut down for a while, but we're able to open it back up. But we're, we showed resiliency, you know, in those few months that things were shut down, we kind of switched everything around for the projects and basically did everything that we could do um, from home, like the lab experiment designs, uh, a lot of the work around IP that we needed to do mm -hmm. uh, upfront. So when we did eventually go back to the lab, actually we're able to stick with the original timeline of the project. But of course, um, that's not true about all companies. I mean, uh, it was a double whammy because you have COVID and then the price of oil. So uh, for certain companies, you just, your customer base is just like, you know, and, and there's really not much you could do about it. Um, so for us, because this area that we're in um, is we help companies reduce their carbon footprint. And as you've seen, that momentum not only has not gone down because of COVID, it is increased like significantly yeah. all the way to like even every day you see new oil companies um, coming out with the climate pledges and like want to be net zero in 2050 or, or sooner. And, you know, like I say all the time, the CEOs make these pledges then they'll look back at the business and it's like, okay, now you guys go make it happen. <laughs> They're like, well, what do, what do we exactly do? You know? 
And that's where we want to help them. And that's, we talk to those business units to help them. So even though things were slowed down in some ways, in some other ways, life goes on, you know, and um, for entrepreneurs, we just have to move things around and uh, make adjustments and keep moving forward because that's the only thing that you could do. Definitely. And I'm glad it's working out for some Vita, but I know they didn't exactly exist around 2016. How do you think this downturn compares to that one? I think uh, what is different about this one is that it's not just about the you know price of oil and, and like competing with mm -hmm. other sources of energy. This one is compounded by the issue around um, climate change and um, you know low carbon solutions ESG criteria uh, is a big deal right now, uh, which is basically you know these investors the big big money like endowments you know foundation funds and um, they would want to make investments in companies that are you know sustainable. Um, so oil and gas continuously had gotten to this point uh, where it's like tobacco, right? Like no one wants to touch it. Yep. And the way to get out of it is really these companies have to reduce their carbon footprint. And, you know, this, whether we had the downturn or not, this would have been there, but the downturn uh, like compounded that. So like it's, it was the survival of the fittest before, but now it's like survival of the fittest of the fittest, you know, <laughs> yeah. because you have to, find ways to be profitable, but also be sustainable. Like, how do you do that? You know? And that's where we, at least I believe that um, the area of carbon capture, utilization and storage or CCUS is such a core thing to any oil and gas company. If they're not doing that today or not thinking about it, they're really rolling the dice on whether they're going to be around in, you know, five, 10, 15 years or not which is why you see the ones that do care about it or, you know, making like massive investments in, in this area. And that just starts the snowball, right? Because then you have then service companies do it. Like today it was announced that the Baker Hughes bought out compact, uh, you know, carbon capture company. Um, if you had told someone that Baker Hughes bought a carbon capture company like five years ago, they were like, what? What, you, yeah. what, what did they buy a what? Like, what did they do? <laughs> But this is now core to what these service companies have to do. And one of them does it, then the others have to follow because guess what? Their customers are asking them for these solutions. So they have to buy. And then because of that, then you're going to have more startups develop in this area. And this is how it always goes with technology development uh, in, in oil and gas. Yeah. So clearly more and more people are looking towards it. Like you said, in a time span of just five years, the whole idea of what a company should be developing and investing in changed. You think this downturn will change anything else? Maybe, I don't know. I can't speculate anything. What do you think? Yeah, I think a few, a few other things have changed this time around. One was that I think, you know, for a lot of, especially the old timers in the industry, they say, oh, we, we've lived through many downturns and this is just another one. And that's true in, in some cases, but it's not because we had a lot of people that left oil and gas and they just don't want to come back. They just don't want to go through this again every four or five years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, especially the other sources of energy are becoming more efficient and we do have to, it's our responsibility as the industry to take a step back and see, okay, how do we stay relevant? You know, 
Um, how do we keep our social license to operate while continuing to provide the services and the products that the society wants in 2020 and beyond? And these fundamental questions were not on the table really, you know, in the last downturn. That was more about like, oh, well, this is happening. Um, we need to just like manage our finances and the times will come back, you know, but this time is, is more complicated. Like society is involved, you know, um, there is uh, pressure on, on countries to reduce the carbon footprint and companies, public companies. And uh, also there is a, you know, before we, we didn't have this issue of diversification the same way that we have today. Like now all companies, I think one by one, they're realizing, wait, are we still an oil company or should we become an energy company? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it started from European companies, like, in, you know, you saw it, like Estadol changed the name to Econor to get the oil out of there, right? But now you have all the other ones following and adding solar wind, you know, portfolio to what they have to diversify. And I think that's the right thing to do uh, next to uh, investing in, in CCUS. So none of this was there in the last downturn, which is in, in some ways that's what makes it exciting because it provides new opportunities for industry professionals to kind of uh, train themselves in these areas and become like energy professionals, as you may already know, like even SPE is considering changing their name to Society of Energy Engineers instead of just petroleum. Uh, but this is, a, yeah, it's a bigger trend that is happening, I think, and, and the downturn just kind of accelerated it. Yeah. And then you also mentioned at one point how there's some people who just said, I don't want any part of it. They've left the industry entirely. Do you have any advice or wisdom for people like my age or maybe students of petroleum or other energy disciplines, what they can do so that they don't equally become as pessimistic and get burnt out and leave? I think, you know, it's like when we go to school, you kind of think you know what you want to do, right? And then yeah. you get the first <laughs> job and you're there for, you know, a few years. And then it hits you, right? Like, wait a minute, do I actually like, like everything that I do here, <laughs> you know? And you start comparing yourself to others. And on top of that, for those in oil and gas now, uh, there's just a stress about the downturn all the time, right? Uh, especially, I think it's, it hits oil and gas people harder because when things are good, things are good. Like they change your lifestyle and everything. And then it's like, whoa, and now it's being threatened again, you know? Um, one thing I would say, in, and I mean, this is like what I have done too, because remember, I'm also, I was working for Weatherford. I mean, I'm no different than anybody, right? Uh -huh. Is to keep an open mind in learning new things. Even if others don't still believe in it or don't think that's going to become mainstream, um, to really take time to learn those things and become experts in them as much as you can. Uh, I mean, right now, um, for those in oil and gas, you could learn about energy. You could learn about uh, you know, solar, you could learn about wind, you could learn about geothermal. It's right there. It's the same thing, subsurface, you know. You could learn about CCUS, CO2 EOR, sequestration, and that would just make you one more marketable to the energy companies of the future who will be needing these things. And also, you know, uh, it's not like before where even if you come out of college, it's not like, well, oh, I need to get an inter internship with, you know, the BP or Chevron. No, you can now go join a startup yeah. from the beginning, you know, and um, knowing those things, even if someone is in the school, like to do their thesis on these practical things, they speak to the future. It just makes them more marketable 
and then you know for themselves too eventually if they want to start a company or whatnot uh, so there's a lot more options on the table even though people think like it's now more limiting it's not it's just like depending on how you receive it definitely and that's something that a lot of people on this show have said i mean you got to keep learning and what better way to go to either some vita see what they can do or revpetro.com again i'll put those links there plenty of resources we got to continue to learn continue to develop but i've got one more question it's a little bit more on the technical side because uh really i'm curious more about what samvita does do you ever get into disagreements involved with uh who, do you ever get into disagreements with those who work in ethane cracking because i imagine taking co2 as a feedstock kind of flips the script and probably threatens some companies how do you deal with that yeah, so maybe uh, let me provide some context uh, for this. Uh, one of the pathways that we've been working on is this pathway to use flue gas from, let's say, cogent power plant and then convert that into ethylene. And, uh, you know, ethylene, people from downstream know more about it than upstream, right? Because upstream, we don't care. We just drill the pipeline <laughs> and then we're out, right? Yep. Onto the next rig. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that natural gas and ethane, like you said, is used to then make ethylene. And then ethylene is a huge uh, precursor for polymers and plastics, right? Um, so that process of ethane cracking is very energy intensive. And with our method, you could actually have engineered microbes, the same ones kind of similar to what is done in fermentation, you know, to make ethanol from corn or from, um, you know, sugar or like in breweries, right? <laughs> fermentation, it's not new, right? But now you could use this engineered microbes to convert that CO2 into ethylene. Now, when you go talk to existing kind of um, ethylene producers, they actually welcome ideas like this because um, things are changing for them too. Mm -hmm. uh, let me explain that. So let's say right now, there are a lot of consumers that if they're buying, let's say this mouse, right? They're saying, I want to know the carbon footprint that went into making this. Like they say, you know, carbon is the new calorie, right? <laughs> so what does this mean? Well, they want to know this, but someone made this mouse, right? So some bigger company bought, you know, plastic from the plastic producer and that plastic producer bought the ethylene from the ethylene producer. So now this company is asking the plastic company, hey, what is the carbon footprint of your plastics? And then the plastic company is asking the same thing from the ethylene company. You know, they don't want the others up the chain to dump their carbon footprint on them, right? They want the ones that could take it off from them. So my point is, there is a lot of value in providing carbon negative ethylene. And if you could even make it cheaper, which, you know, the one, the path we're working on actually techno-economic assessment shows we could produce that 30% cheaper than what they're doing today. And it's carbon negative. So it's a whole new market for them that they're open to, you know, and could explore. And it goes the same thing. Like for them also, it's not just upstream, like downstream also has to reinvent themselves to, because not, I get it. Like most of the oil we use for fuel, but we still use a lot of it also for, you know, chemicals like polymers, plastics, right? So they also have to uh, reinvent themselves. And companies like us is part of you know how they could do that yeah and i thought i was maybe throwing you a curveball with that question because it wasn't on the script but you nailed it so please everyone <laughs> go to some vita factory it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when make use of their technology i'll put the links to contact both 
Moji and the rest of his company in the description of this video. But I think that brings us to the end. Is there anything else you want to say? Any plugs for Semvita? Anything at all you want to say before we end this podcast? No, the only thing I would say is, um, you know, a lot of people in the industry, they, they kind of, in the, they're hearing things about CO2 and CO2 capture and utilization. And it's like, you kind of were doing your job and you keep hearing about it until it's like, well, wait a minute, what is this all about? Let, let mm. me go like dig into this. And I highly recommend that everyone in oil and gas to do that. Um, if there are any ways that we could kind of think about turning the model on its head, like using CO2, using methane as feedstock, both on surface or in the subsurface with new technology, I think that's what the industry needs to do. And uh, we'll look forward to working with both, uh, you know, those who want to join us or those who have an application that can work with us uh, because we all have to do this together to have this, like they say, safe journey across energy transition to the other side. So uh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, of course. So thanks again. Everyone, you heard it here from Moji himself. We need to work together to transition step by step. It's not going to happen fast, but if we can continue working and learning, we'll be a-okay. So more industry leader spotlight episodes on rarepetro.com. Again, I'll include all the contact information for Sambita and Moji in the description of the video. Nothing too personal, just emails, of course, and LinkedIn links. But thanks again for joining us. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Thank you.